I am so thankful for uh, Lenny Lucchetti, for his teaching, for his heart. I mean, uh, I like the way he has fully integrated the life of a, uh, a believer, a follower, into the vocation of a pastor. And so, Lenny, bless you, brother, as you come back again. <clears throat> crowd has thinned. <laughs> I can't say what Jesus said. Uh, I have not lost a single one that the Father has given me. I've actually lost about 60. Uh, glad you're back. I, I say to most groups I speak to, I say how much I enjoyed being with the group and how much fun they were, and, uh, but I don't always mean it, um, but I really do mean it uh, being here. So I've had fun. I, I, uh, I was praying during lunch and uh, prepping for this session and uh, uh, came to tears when I thought about how far some of you traveled just simply to learn and how to better rightly divide the word of truth, how to be your best for God, how to reach your full preaching potential and how you sacrifice time and energy and expenses, time from church, time from family to come and do this. And uh, that just it touches me. So thank you for being here. You're not here to see me. You're here to learn. And uh, so thank you. I want to I give a book to uh, uh, the Baptist who came the furthest. I already gave one copy to a Wesleyan who actually lives right here. But uh, who have you traveled the furthest? By the way, it has my chicken scratch in it. This is one of my home copies. So, but, so sorry about that. Uh, how many of you, who traveled the furthest? Uh, who came the furthest? Three hours away, anybody? Drive three hours? Okay. Four hours away, keep your hand up. Oh, man, five hours away? So, you're not bad at this, come on. Here you go, brother. It's good, uh, good insomnia material. And let me just... I know Eileen, Ga where's Eileen Gavel? Is she here? Gable? Is it Gable? Sorry. Eileen's back there. Uh, she'll probably be thanked later, I'm sure. But, you know, some people, like, when they serve you, make you feel like uh, you're doing them a favor by letting them serve you. And that's Eileen. Like, she, she goes out of her way to serve. She's so hospitable, does it with a smile, and makes you feel like you're doing her a favor. So let's, let's thank Eileen. She's doing a great job. <laughs> And then Shane, the AV guy. I mean, the only time we ever notice the AV guy is when things go bad, right? Like today, when I messed up and we looked at him. Uh, so thanks, thanks, Shane, as well, for giving his time and energy. Thank you. In my uh, last session, I want to talk about uh, listening to our people. So last session we talked about listening to God, how if we're not careful in ministry, we can become not practical atheists, but practical deists, trying to do the work of the Lord without the Lord of the work. Uh, and I suggested at the first session that the best preachers are the best listeners. They cultivated the capacity to listen long and hard to the heart of God and the hopes of humanity, and then through the sermon, bringing the two together. So in this session, I really want to focus on what it means to listen for the hopes of humanity. Most of us get the prophetic side of preaching. We realize that we are called to be, as preachers, prophets who represent 
God to humanity. We get that part. But what it took me a long time to realize as a preacher is that I'm not only called to be a prophet who represents God to humanity, I'm also called to be, through the sermon, a priest who represents humanity to God. So we're not called to be uh, just a prophet like Isaiah, representing God to humanity, and we're not called just to be a priest like Aaron, representing humanity to God. We're actually called to be a prophet priest like Elijah, representing God to humanity and humanity to God. And I think it's the priestly side of preaching, not the prophetic, but the priestly side that often gets short shrifted. It doesn't get enough attention. And I think the Christian sermon is the perfect venue for preachers to stand uh, as the priest at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You remember in Leviticus 16, uh, again, you weren't there, but in Leviticus 16, uh, the people are instructed about how to celebrate and worship God through the, the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, one day a year, the high priest would, uh, in the context of Jewish worship with the community gathered, would lay his hands on uh, the goat, the scapegoat. And he would first confess his sins. All of the sins that he committed all of the year, he would confess and lay upon the head of the goat. And then he would confess the sins of the entire nation and transfer them onto the head of the goat, the scapegoat. And that scapegoat carrying all the sins of all of the people committed all during that year was led out of the city gate and let go into the desert to be devoured by Azazel, the desert demon. Sins are gone. Fresh start, clean slate, a do-over. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God laid upon his son, the scapegoat, the sins of all the people of all the world for all time. And then that scapegoat was let out of the city gate and hung upon a tree so that by his stripes we are healed. As preachers, we get to stand as priests at Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Not only prophetically uh, preaching conviction of sin, but as a priest offering absolution from sin. What does that look like practically? Well, let me just give you one example of what it could look like. Uh, I was preaching one year, a long time ago now, uh, preaching a sermon called Mulligans. You know what a mulligan is, right? It's a golf term. It's, it's a, it's a do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. It's a Yom Kippur sort of. A, a mulligan is when you hit a bad shot in golf, and I hit many, uh, honestly, and uh, hopefully you're with a gracious person because a mulligan, you can't give yourself a mulligan. I guess you can, but it's better if it comes as a gift of pure grace from someone else outside of you. And if you're playing with a gracious person, they will give you another ball to hit and tell you to take a mulligan. And it's as if the errant shot never happened. You just drop the ball and hit it again. I remember uh, during this sermon, so I was comparing, I was using mulligan metaphorically 
for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then, of course, bringing that to Jesus Christ, the scapegoat. And I was preaching prophetically, challenging people, convicting of sin. But at the end of the message, uh, I looked my congregation in the eyes. I remember two Daves in the congregation. One Dave, a longtime Christian, uh, on a second marriage, some regrets, but very biblically knowledgeable, theologically thoughtful, uh, longtime mature Christian, and yet... uh, So he's over here, and then there's another Dave over here in the congregation who's just got out of jail. He's a recovering heroin addict, struggling with it, lost his family because of his addiction. There's two Daves, and there's everybody in between. And at the end of that sermon, I looked out at those two guys, both with regrets, regrets from the past, failures of the past, and struggles in the present, and everybody in between. And I looked them in the eyes, and I said, do you want a mulligan, a fresh start, a clean slate, a do-over? Are you ready for Yom Kippur? And do you believe that Jesus came to give you that as we head into a new year? It was a New Year's Year's sermon. And I said, if so, I said these words, if so, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And I remember very vividly feeling as if the air in the room just sort of lifted, that, uh, that there was celebration in the air. Like the countenance of people changed. People who came to church that Sunday with their tail between their legs and their head hanging in the shame of sin left that day with a new pep in their step that they did not have when they came in. It was as if I wrote everybody a check for $1,000. And I did not, I assure you. And something occurred to me that day, and that was they, the people in the congregation were so starved frankly, for what I was not giving them. I was a good prophetic truth teller. I was not a very good priestly grace giver. I was good at eliciting, by the power of the Spirit, conviction of sin, not so much absolution from sin. I was good at the bad news. (laughs) I wasn't so good at the good news. John 1.14, sort of my ministry motto, my verse that keeps me, I think, in between two boundaries. Jesus Christ came from the Father full of grace and truth. Grace without truth is no grace at all. Truth without grace is no truth at all. We need both. And some of us feel like we have to choose. I did. Well, I'm more of a prophetic truth teller. That's who I am. That's how I'm wired. When I preach, I prophetically tell the truth. And then there are people over here who who feel like they're wired to simply be priestly grace givers. And we call those sort of the tolerant, compromised churches, right? Some of those are just pat people on the back and say, keep on sinning that grace may abound. So priestly grace giving without prophetic truth telling is not the answer. But holiness, conservative folk, prophetic truth telling without priestly grace giving is also problematic. It's half of a gospel. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, priestly grace-giving. Go and sin no more, prophetic truth-telling. I have my students do uh, an exercise where they have to uh, interview five people in their church, maybe more, but no less than five. And they ask their people the question, 
and I encourage them to get a cross-section of people in terms of age and length of time in the church. And they asked their lay people this question, what makes a good sermon good and a bad sermon bad? And that's very informative. I encourage you to do that with your, your laity. Ask that question. They'll tell you anonymously. <laughs> One of my students did this for class this semester. And uh, one of his congregation members, Eric, who's 36 years old, uh, responded with this. Here's what he wrote. My mother is a very compassionate person. When I have brought her to another church, the message has been solid preaching. However, looking back, the message was delivered staunchly, almost cold. And she never wants to go back there because of offense. And she's put off in some way. I firmly believe the same message delivered with love and compassion for people will not fall on deaf ears. For me, a solid convicting message must be delivered with passion, love, and compassion for people. I don't care if you punch me in the face. If the word is preached in love through conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'll say thank you and come back every time. Eric is suggesting that the best prophetic preachers are also priestly. He's basically saying, you can give me the hard prophetic truth, give it to me. But with it, give me some priestly grace, give me both. Eric wants to know that the preacher has not only come to represent God to humanity, like Jesus, but the preacher also, like Christ, has come through the sermon to represent humanity to God, just like Jesus did. Prophet, priest. Jesus, prophet, priest. Preacher, prophet, priest. People out there in the pews want to know that we're not just sharing truth, but we're sharing truth in a way that's contextual to them, that we're putting truth in a container they can drink from without watering down the essence of the gospel, just putting it in a container from which people can drink based upon their specific situations. That's not compromising. That's what, that's what incarnation is all about, right? How did God convince us of his love? He came in a contextual container. He came in the skin of first century Palestinian Jews to reach first century Palestinian Jews. <laughs> How dare any of us who preach proclaim a God who proved the depth of his love by jumping into our skin and shoes while we fail to do the same through the sermon. That's hypocritical, if you ask me. I think there's two extremes to avoid uh, maybe they're not extremes, but two things to avoid when it comes to um, priestly preaching. Apathy and anger. Apathy and anger. Have you ever seen an apathetic preacher? You know what that looks like? Like there's just no sense of real urgency there? You know, like they're selling Amway products or Ginsu knives or something like that. You ever, did you, have you ever seen this? And I'm not talking about personality differences. I'm, I'm just talking about p preachers who, when they preach, you, you get the sense they really don't give a rip about their people at all. Like they are a million miles away or wishing they were. You know? 
that they've forgotten why they're doing what they're doing and who they're doing it for, that they've been called by the God of the universe to listen for the hopes of humanity and the heart of God, and then through the sermon, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring these two lost lovers together again for eternity. How could we be apathetic about that? It's not like selling knives and weight products. Sometimes the the sense we get is that the preacher is more in love with his or her well-written manuscript than with the people to whom he or she preaches. More in love with their rhetorical eloquence than with the people to whom they preach. More in love with their exegetical insight than with the people to whom they preach. Apathetic. The bigger issue, I think, though, is anger. Uh, I think somebody, I don't know if it was Dave or uh, Peter, who said there's a lot of angry preaching out there today. There, There is. Preaching can become an occasion, if we're not careful, to attack cantankerous church members who get in the way of our vision and dream. I know none of you would ever do that, but I did a lot. I used the pulpit as a bully far too often because I was afraid to have a sit down, a cup of coffee, and just speak the truth and love to my to the person who was driving me nuts. So during the sermon, I attacked them in a way that was sort of subtle that no one else would know, but they knew it. The other way that angry preaching comes out is when the preacher views preaching as an occasion to not attack church members, but to, uh, to attack people out there who struggle with sins that they themselves don't struggle with, like sexuality or addiction. So instead of preaching on homosexuality, which maybe the preacher doesn't struggle with, uh, preach on gluttony, because maybe the preacher struggles with that, or greed, or something like that, or egotism. Angry preaching is prevalent. There's no place for it. I'm going to show you a clip. It's kind of funny at first, and then it's kind of sad. Let's play this clip, and this is an example of angry preaching. Maybe you saw it. I think you have. While I'm talking, hey, hey, hey! Don't, don't, don't you lay your head back. I, I'm, I'm important. I'm somebody. Now you might do your English teacher that way, but I'm not teaching English. I'm teaching eternal life here. I love you. You know I love you. Have I convinced you I love you? Uh, yeah. You better, th- you better nod your head. Yes. All right. Come on, put it right there. All right. You stay awake and you listen to me. You say, well, he may never come back. Well, he ain't here now. And where have you been? Mr. Underwood. And I noticed on the calendar I'm supposed to marry y'all. What makes you think I'd marry you? You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents. And you want me to marry you to her? And you want to marry him? And he don't even know where he belongs? And you don't even know where you belong? Now, uh, let me tell y'all everybody here how much I love these kids. Do you know I love you, sir? Stand up, big boy. Do you know I love you? All right. All right. Give me a little love. Mm-hmm. I'm a real deal. Yeah. All right. I know you are, too, but you ain't been here. You can't get this in any other church in town. Now, y'all don't want me. All you got to do is tell me. We won't have a church fight. 
because I'll get my little Connie and we'll get in her little Buick Enclave. It's paid for and we'll sell what we need to sell and we'll go on down the road and we'll find some little podunk church that don't know up from down and I'll find me a dozen Joe's baskets who don't have a pot or a window and who'll shout Jesus and I'll give the rest of my life to them. But I'm not interested in recreating the prostitute of the church. Amen. Amen. You remember when I came here, Kelly? You remember where your wife was, where your sisters were? Do you remember where they were? And we made holy war. Do you remember that? Stay with me. Don't quit me. Oh, Brandy. Oh, Brandy's a sweet girl and she's got her children. Yes, y'all are good and y'all are fine, but your children will turn on you if you don't hold up the standard and the banner of God. And if they don't turn on you, they'll just, you'll just produce nice little whirlians. Are y'all keeping the camera on me back there in the little video room? Good. We're having trouble in the video room. There's no one finer than young Cox back there. And he comes down here and spends hours in that thing. But he has a little attitude adjustment that we're going to fix. Brother Cox, you listening? Because, Brother Cox, I can fix your attitude adjustment. And I don't care what your mama thinks and your daddy thinks. And I don't have a better friend than your mama. But, Mama, you get out of my way when I'm messing with that boy because I'm his preacher. I'm, I'm yours when I'm talking to you. But I'm his when I'm talking to him. And last I checked, he's a grown man. And that video room ain't going to be a youth hangout. We might as well just fix this thing. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Well, if you don't know what you're doing wrong, son, you don't care about what I want to do right. Because if you loved me and you submitted to me, you'd know what my heart is and my message is, and you wouldn't go about establishing your own kingdom in the video room. I really feel good now. Jesus. Jesus. That's for Shane. That's, uh, it's comedy and tragedy all at once. It really is. It, it's actually it's an actual service. I mean, it's 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 not. It's probably, yeah. By the way, that's a Baptist church, but <laughs> but there are Wesleyan churches where you'd find the same kind of preaching. Let me just say that. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on. Let's talk about how not to 
do that. Uh, and I think it means staying connected to our people as priests. Here are some uh, priestly preaching practices. I just want to throw at you some practical ideas to make sure that you not only stay connected to God and listen with one ear to him, but with the other ear, you're listening to your people and loving your people and leaning into them. Pray like a priest. Two ways to do this. Uh, Once I, maybe on Tuesday by Wednesday, I have an idea of what the sermon will say that coming Sunday. If I've wrestled with the angel of the text and I've won, by Wednesday I'm kind of ready. I have a word from the Lord. And what I do to make sure that the kingdom reality I'm going to preach is grounded in the realities of the people to whom I preach is I just start to pray through my church directory by name. God, how will Renee need to hear this message? How about Patrick and all that he's going through? How will he hear this word from the Lord? I just sort of pray through names. This way I'm not flying in esoteric la-la land, disconnected from the realities of my people, but I'm making sure that what I'm about to preach is is deeply and intensely connected to the realities they're facing. It's putting myself in their situational shoes. Pray the directory. The other thing is prayer walk the campus. So go to places where, uh, for me, memories are triggered by being in certain places. So go and pray in the sanctuary and look at, you know, you know where people sit every week and then go to the nursery and pray for the kids and then uh, go to the youth room Uh, which is the AV room, I guess, apparently, Uh, and pray for the youth. And so just go to the places where people gather and just pray the sermon into the lives of your people as you do a prayer walk. Another prayer walk I would suggest uh, is going to Walmart. Uh, People never seem more hopeless than when they're walking around Walmart. I don't know why, because they got the best deals. Uh, If you can be a Christian in Walmart and a Christian in a golf course, you are sanctified. That's kind of my model. But what I like to do is go in Walmart because you have all kinds of people, all stripes and styles and sizes of people. It's, uh, and just walk up and down the aisles, buy your cereal or magazine or whatever, and look people in the eyes and just uh, listen for the voice of the Spirit leading you on and how to pray for that person. Try to imagine what they might be going through. And just don't pray out loud necessarily. Uh, don't pull a Benny Hinn and sort of slap them in the forehead. Just, just listen for God, look people in the eyes, and pray as the Spirit leads you. And it will make sure that the sermon you're going to preach is, again, grounded in the realities of real people. Okay. You have in your congregation uh, various types of listeners. You have people who listen to the sermon with their heart for inspiration. They want experiential digging. Uh, There was a guy uh, named Joe. He actually happened to be our AV guy. And uh, Joe uh, listened with his heart to sermons. He wanted inspiration. So whenever I was telling a story or sharing a testimony, uh, Joe was crying in the back. I mean, he, he leaned in during the inspirational story time. <laughs> he wanted sermons like, you know, you matter to God, and God, uh, God can comfort the brokenhearted, and God can redeem the junk of your past. He wanted those kinds of sermons. He listened with his heart for inspiration. Then there are people who listen with their mind for information. They want exegetical digging. There's a guy named Dave in my congregation who uh, uh, he, he wanted sermons like three sources of conflict in the Corinthian church. He wanted sermons like colossal claims about Christ in Colossians. He wanted, he wanted historical background. He wanted word studies. He wanted Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. I mean, he wanted everything. 
He actually did want to know what happened to the Jebusites. I mean, he actually cared about that. I mean, he just wanted to know every exegetical detail you can come up with. So he listened with his mind for information. And then there was Patrick, who uh, listened with his soul for uh, reflection. He wanted theological digging. He didn't just want to focus in on the historical background and the word studies, the exegesis. He wanted actually a, a, a larger view. He wanted the, the forest, the theological forest, not so much the exegetical trees. He wanted sermons like Implications of the Incarnation, uh, the Trinity modeled by community. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, he wanted, he wanted philosophy and theology, and he was the one who would come, ap- come at me after sermons usually, not in a mean way, just, have you considered this theological angle, Len? You know, he was that guy. He listened with his soul for theological reflection. And then there was Rich. Rich worked on Wall Street until he got fired, and so he's a bottom-line thinker. And he just listened with his, uh, his hands and feet for application. He wanted practical digging. He wanted sermons like Six Ways to Have a Godly Marriage, uh, How to Manage Your Finances. He wanted bottom-line practical application primarily. Now, the problem with preaching today is that unless you've chased away a lot of people from your church, you probably have all four listeners in your church And one of the bigger problems in preaching is that we tend to make our style our lead card. So my style is exegetical. You know, I I, I preach uh, information for the mind. That's who I am. Or I preach inspiration for the heart. And we let our style be our lead card. It shouldn't be our lead card. The lead card is, number one, what does God want me to say? Number two, how do I need to say it to the particular people to whom I preach? How do they need to hear it? And you have all four out there. And the problem is we tend to preach in a way that we most want to be preached to. So here's how you can get around that. Uh, The first thing I would suggest is try to make sure in every sermon, because you have all four listeners probably in your church, again, unless you've chased them away, try to add elements to the sermon to connect with all four of these listeners. Or if you're going to do a a month-long sermon series, uh, maybe make one of these primary each week. Start out with a sermon on it, topic of marriage, uh, inspiration for the heart, uh, next week, uh, information for the mind, the next week, reflection for the soul, the next week, the fourth week, application. Okay? You can call this the Shema sermon form. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a great way to structure a sermon, actually. Okay. Let me ask you, how many of you would say uh, when you listen to sermons, you listen primarily uh, for information for the mind? How many of you? Raise your hand if that's who you are. Okay. Know yourself and make sure that you don't preach in a style only compatible with you. How many of you would say uh, the primary way you listen to a sermon is inspiration for the heart? Okay. Reflection, theological reflection for the soul. How many of you are practical application for the hands? Okay, got a good mix. All four of the groups are here. Try to preach in a way that's beyond just your personal preference, okay? You get that. And one more practice I want to encourage, and I'm going to give you a chance to experiment with it. Once you have an idea of what the sermon will say, uh, before you start writing the sermon, you've done the exegesis of the text and your people, and you kind of have an idea of the word of the Lord for that week. Because you can't say everything. You've got to say one thing well, not everything. If you try to say everything, you won't say anything. 
And so once you have the sermon focus in mind, then you prayerfully wrestle with these questions. How does this sermon focus intersect with me personally, which I talked about last time, devotional connection? How does it intersect with what's going on in the life of my church, God's church? How does it intersect with what's going on in the community outside the church, the nation, and the world? So let's imagine that the focus of the sermon, say you're preaching from Mark 5, the demon-possessed madman, running around in the nude, cutting himself and yelling out vulgarity, that guy. And you want to preach this focus. Christ's love liberates us from loneliness because once the guy gets healed, he goes back to community. Go back home. Tell everybody what God has done for you. So I'm going to give you just like five minutes right now just to prayerfully imagine that this is your sermon for the week, that, that focus. How would that speak into the life your life maybe, but also into the life of your church, community, nation, and world. Go ahead and do it. I'm going to give you five minutes to do that. Just imagine that you're preaching that this week. One, two, you can talk it out uh, in groups two or three. We'll give you about five minutes to do that. How would you preach that to your church, to your community, nation, world? Start with church. How will this sermon uh, connect with people in your church. Kevin, oh, you're volunteering. How will this sermon connect with people in your church? I'll be right back. Hmm, okay. Dan, how about you? Actually, I preached over this text a month and a half ago. And uh, in, in the church aspect, because in the Wesleyan tradition, we really don't get into the demon possession bit of it. Uh, Thanks. Focused on the reality of demons, mm-hmm. and but then went to the fact that this trip was intentional, that with all that Christ had to do in saving the world, that the only reason he went there was to deliver this man from the demons. There was no other reason for him to be there. He goes there, he leaves. He did that one thing. And just kind of wrap people around that, that that we have this great mission of the world, but it all has to start with individual people. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Anybody else? How will this connect with your ministry context, your church? Um. I, I just looked at three, three things that just came to me very, very quickly about, about this one and, and how to relate to the personal and move around that circle, uh, personal church. I just wrote three things real quick. Is Jesus is present uh, in his sacrifice. Uh, he's present by his spirit, and he's present in our service. And uh, it's like the illustration of the lady that came to the pastor was really bored with her life and was very, very lonely, and he just gave you the instruction to go home and bake some cookies and take it to a lady on the other side of the tracks, oh. spend some time with her That's good. so that our loneliness is swallowed up in our service. That's good. Thank you. Who, who are the loneliest people in your church? Just shout it out. Who, who's the loneliest person in your church or loneliest kind of person? Pastor. The preacher. <laughs> Those, that Those that don't have much? Don't have identity. identity. Who would that be? So retirees, out of work, lost their job, people who are transient. If you have a community that's transient and people move in, they're away from their family and what's familiar, and they come into your community. Uh, somebody who's a widower, uh, somebody who's recently divorced. Um, who else? Yep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, looking for community and feeling lonely. And ostracized. Who, who are some ostracized people who feel like maybe the demon-possessed man-man might have felt uh, cut off from community because of 
issues, some of them maybe in his control, some of them outside of his control. Who are those people in your community? Schizophrenic, yeah, people with emotional, emotional disorders. Yeah, they're running around in the tombs. Yep. Who else is running around in the tombs in your context? Who who are the groups by and large who tend to be cut off from the church? Groups. Talk about whole groups. Who homosexuals? Who else? Addicts. Yep. Ex-cons. Yep. Yep. Immigrants. Absolutely. Yep. Good. Yeah. Think about the people in your church and in your community who are forced to live in lonely places because of forces perhaps outside of them that they cannot control and preach it that way. All right. I want to give you uh, one exercise, one more, I promise. Uh, This one's really important, I think. I would like for you to uh, write out a a prayer uh, to close our time together, at least my time with you. Not our time, my time with you. I want you to write a prayer uh, that reflects your desire to listen for God and for humanity, that reflects uh, sort of preaching prayer, reflects your desire to be a prophetic truth teller as well as a priestly grace giver. So just write a prayer. I, I tend to do that uh, with every sermon I preach. I actually try to write uh, on write, handwrite uh, a prayer that goes with that sermon and applies to the people to whom I will preach that sermon. I just write a, you know, four or five sentences, a prayer, my sort of hopes for the sermon and my desire to stay out of the way of it. And so uh, I want you to just write a preacher's prayer. Write your best, biggest ask, ask. Uh, to God regarding your preaching ministry. Go ahead. Give you about two minutes, three minutes to do that. If you can ask for anything, Jesus often asks, what do you want me to do for you? If he, if he asked you that in, in light of your preaching ministry, what would you answer? You can ask for anything. Sky's the limit. Can I invite you to uh, take a posture of prayer? If you're able to get on your knees, you don't have to. You don't feel any pressure. But uh, if you can and you're willing, would you just get on your knees and offer that prayer up to God before uh, the moment slips away? Can I ask you to do something a little bit risky, maybe for Wesleyans and Baptists? Uh, could we pray those prayers out loud all together? Can we do that? And, and nobody will be listening to yours because they're praying their own. So go ahead and, and speak it out into existence and then let God do with it what he will. Let's pray.
Here's a prayer I wrote uh, that my friend Emily Vermilia from College Wesleyan Church put to music. So let's, uh, let's listen to it and pray it together. God, fill my mouth with the message of hope of Christ for all in this place. Spirit, inspire light of fire in my soul by your word for your church in this day. Multiply the bread and fish of my work. Speak through my wobbly words. Capture and rapture. Set captives free by your word Proclaimed unashamed Bend my ear to your heart, Lord, impart A picture of all that you see A world torn apart, suffering shame Lost in darkness, changed by the truth here proclaimed. May my words portray your goodness and grace, a balm bringing healing and hope. Each pause, every phrase, may my life bring you praise as your word compels my soul. Leviticus 26, 13, uh, God says through Moses to the Hebrew slaves, I broke the bars of your yoke and I caused you to walk with your heads held high. And I believe that God, through the words of an anointed preacher, breaks bars and lifts backs, that preaching can be chiropractic, that it can straighten out the crooked, slouched backs of the human race so that they're heading heavenward. God has called you, if you're a preacher, to do just that. You're a chiropractor, straightening out the crooked back of the human race. Can I just end with some scripture over you? Is that okay? Benediction. May the God of peace, God himself, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the coming of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Does preaching matter? 
If you're a preacher, you had better believe it. Thanks. Let's take a 10-minute break and then come on back.